following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, please turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, as you probably assume, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews today. Uh, Pastor Andrew did a great job unpacking the first half of this chapter for us last week. This chapter focuses on the superiority of Christ once for all sacrifice compared to the daily and yearly sacrifices of the old covenant. So we got introduced to that idea last week and uh, Pastor Andrew helped us to grapple with a common question for many people, which is why is a sacrifice needed at all? which is a good question and and something that I think he helped us think through. So today, we're going to pick up in verse 15. We'll work through to the end of the chapter. That's verse 28. Some of what we encounter today will overlap with last week, and part of that's because the author reiterates and emphasizes some of the same principles, but that's not surprising given how primary and pivotal these principles are to understanding not just why we need sin to be atoned for, but how it is God accomplished this in Christ, okay? Hebrews is well known for being kind of deep, and and that's going to be obvious today. We're going to get in the deep end of the pool a little bit, all right? So let's read these verses together. As I said, Hebrews 9, uh, starting in verse 15. For this reason... He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Praise God for his word. I didn't lie to you, did I? We got work to do. And I'm trying to preach short, so we'll see how this goes. 
Amen. All right, so go back to verse 15. Let's, let's work it out. You know what we're doing. I'll start with this, and, and I know this may seem like an out-of-the-pocket statement since we are studying a book of the Bible that is largely a juxtaposition, or in other words, it's a comparison for the sake of noticing the contrast, okay, <clears throat> between the Old and the New Covenant, but they are more similar than we may sometimes realize. I know a big point of this book is to show us how it's different and the New is superior, but I think sometimes we overstate maybe the differences. Because it is an oversimplification to say that the old covenant was based solely on works and the new covenant solely on grace. I see most of you don't agree with that yet. Let's get, okay, let me work on it. I said it's an oversimplification, all right? It, it, it was not as simple as do these things and don't do these things, and that was it, Okay? Built into the Old Covenant was the acknowledgement that the people would not do those things perfectly. That's why the priesthood and the sacrificial system was a part of the agreement. Okay? So that, that basically what that said is, okay, here, here is the standard. You're not going to keep it, so we're going to need these atoning sacrifices daily and yearly. Okay? The sacrificial system was a means of grace and mercy to atone for the inevitable imperfection of the people. A prominent feature of this letter to the Hebrews is to show them and us this whole system was a forerunner to a perfect sacrifice that would remove the possibility of humans messing up even the means by which they could receive God's mercy for their sins, right? Because that's, that's one of the problems with the Old Testament system for mercy. We were still involved. There were still priests involved. There were still standards involved even in coming and receiving God's mercy through sacrificing an animal instead of us, through an animal dying instead of us, which is what we deserve, right? There was still, there was still a possibility of, of that being messed up. The perfect iteration of that that was coming was that Christ was going to get in the way and do the whole thing and do all of it perfectly. So there was no chance of any error, no chance of any insufficiency creeping up in any part of what was going on. Corrupted priests or the intermingling of worshiping other gods, those are just a couple of ways that even though the blood of animals could be offered as a substitute for their own, Full assurance of salvation could never be grasped. Those are some just examples off the top of my head of ways we could, we could have messed it up, that the Old Testament saints would have, would have messed up, that you, you did have priests, you had Eli's sons and others that, that got greedy with the offerings and didn't, didn't care about necessarily making sure they were, they were ceremonially pure before God in order to offer what they were supposed to offer. So the, so the priests were a weak link, right? And then you just had the general tendency of the people to be like, oh, wow, Baal looks cool. Oh, wow, Molech looks cool. Let's worship them as well. Let's kind of bring it all together, okay? No, like all God's asking for is worship me, okay? Here's a standard. Shoot for that. When you miss it, come and, and, and trust in the mercy that I've provided through the sacrificial system. You, you'd think like, well, maybe you could pull that off. No, we still couldn't. <laughs> That's why Jesus had to come and take every bit of our potentiality for screwing it up out of the equation, which is part of why it's superior, a la the argument of the entire book, basically, okay? 
Verse 15, though, it points us to an answer to another hard question, okay? If faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ is the only way for a person to have their sin atoned for, how is anyone under the old covenant saved? If putting faith in Christ is what, what that, that's, I am the way, right? That's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one's coming to the Father except through me, all right? Well, that would be a problem because there's a whole bunch of people the Bible talks about as, as belonging to God before thousands of years before Jesus was on the scene, okay? So how could they have put faith in him? Well, the answer becomes more clear when we get to Hebrews 11, okay? If you know Hebrews, if you've read through Hebrews, you know Hebrews 11, oftentimes called the hall of faith, but that's the, the answer is faith. And we see this here, said, so look at verse 15 again, all right? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant... Those who have been called in may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, okay? So those who practice their faith in the grace and mercy of God and not in their own righteousness were looking forward to the perfect and final sacrifice that would come through the death of Jesus on the cross. Even if they didn't have the exact details of Christ and, and, and believing on his name, what, what does it say? What... what caught God's attention about Abraham? It was like, was, was Abraham a really good guy? Was Abraham morally upright? And that's why God said, I'm, I'm going to take you and make a people out of you through which all the na- nations of the world, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Was it, was it because of something innate in Abraham, his personal moral character? It wasn't. He had faith. And that was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Okay. And so all those that put the faith, faith into the, the, the mercy of God, in, in a, what we see here is in a sense they were looking forward to that sacrifice that was going to save us all. Their faith, even if they didn't have the details, was ultimately in Christ. Okay? It, it is faith that pleases God. God wants us to believe that he loves us and has both the power and the desire to decimate the power of sin to keep us at a distance from him. That's really what he's looking for from us. Believe that I love you. Look at the evidence. Believe first that I love you. And then believe that I've got the power to solve the problem that sin has created between us. I mean, the ask when you... Oftentimes people conceptualize Christianity as being very harsh and exclusive. I just... Man, the barrier of entry just isn't that high once you really understand what God's asking for here. Uh, Yeah, actually... I know you're going to mess up a lot, but I still really love you, and I've made a way to, to fix all that. Will you just trust me? That, that doesn't seem like a high wall to jump. You know what I mean? That's like a... Seems like you've done all the work. Awesome. <laughs> I don't know. All right, verse 16. Uh, verse 16 through 22, we'll kind of take that together, all right? <clears throat> For where a covenant is, there is, there must be of, or there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Now this can be a bit confusing. Um, one thing we need to know is that the same Greek word used for covenant is used for covenant and testament. Okay, there's there's not a distinction in the word. So typically in Greek, you would have picked it up through the context of which one you were using. Okay, we have words like that too. Um, but, so some of your translations might even say testament in verse 16, and, and I, pers- you know, 
NASB is word for word, and so it's, it's a stickler as far as that. I, I think using the word testament here is really helpful for people to understand the meaning. That really is, when you look at the context and the fact that that word was used in that, in, with the rest of that sentence, that is the meaning behind it. So think of verse 16 and 17 when it's talking about covenant as, as a last will and testament, okay? And that's what, that's what it's talking about. A last will and testament is only in force if the person who drafted it is dead, Right? You've got a will somewhere. Your kids don't get to go grab it out of the closet and say, hey, give me my money, right? No, the will is for when you're dead. That's, that's when that document now comes in to determine what's going to happen because you're now not there to say what you want to happen, right? So, so in a sense, it, it's almost like Jesus had a last will and testament, and what he left to his heirs was freedom from slavery to sin, and eternal life. But in order to pass this inheritance on to us, he had to die. That's really the, the thrust of what's being said there. But it, you could press, and I think we should, the question, okay, all right, so you're saying in order to give us our inheritance, he had to die. But why? Why is that true? Well, that's, that, that question is assumed as the writer continues. Why did Jesus have to die in order to give us the inheritance of a freedom from slavery to sin and eternal life? Because the wages of sin is death. That's why. It comes down to that simple fact. This points us again to the dual function of the old covenant sacrificial system. On one hand, the blood of these unblemished animals being spilled daily and yearly it was meant to be a stark reminder to every Israelite. As that animal, as it was cut and the blood flowed, it was meant to be a stark reminder to that Israelite, that should be me. That was one of the primary functions of that old covenant sacrificial system, was to remind people the wages of sin is death. Because we are sloppy and we are forgetful and we oftentimes can hear something like that from God and let it slip. But if you're seeing daily sacrifices of unblemished animals for sin and you understand it's either that animal's blood or my blood, somebody's blood is getting spilled because I have sinned and the wages of sin is death. It would be a constant reminder that is actually what I deserve and not what I'm getting from a good and merciful God. Function one, right? But also that blood being spilled, the penalty of death being dealt to the animals instead of the people, it was also a temporary covering of their sin. It wasn't just a reminder, there was a function to this. The justice of God was being satisfied. He made, through his mercy and grace, the ability for the, the, the blood of the animal to, to atone for sin instead of the blood of the person. Okay, And so, in, in a... It, it, had the effect of a temporary covering of their sin. Now, this highlights a key difference between the blood of bulls and goats and the blood of Christ that cannot be missed. I'm not going to go backwards and, and trample all over what Pastor Andrew's already covered, but we do see this in verse 14 from last week. Okay, let's read that real quick. Just jump back. Uh, chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through... The eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
the blood of those sacrificed animals could temporarily cover sin, but the blood of Christ cleanses it eternally. The blood of the animals could temporarily cover sin. The blood of Christ cleanses it eternally. It's a bit like the difference. All analogies don't break down. Don't come at me about this. But it's a bit like the difference between sweeping some dust under the rug versus removing it from the house completely. That's the difference. What Christ's blood could do is take that dust, open up a window, a window on a windy day, chuck it out, it's gone. We're not going to see it anymore. It ain't coming back. Okay? Now, let's press into this, why is the wages of sin death? Because those of us that have been around the Bible and the things of God for some time, we hear things enough times and we just kind of like, oh yeah, well, okay, well, that's, that's true. But somebody that is, is new to hearing this, right? And it's, it, is, it is weird. We as the people of God need to acknowledge the fact that you know, we got chapters in the Bible talking about the blood of animals and the blood of Christ, the blood of this Jewish carpenter that was murdered 2,000 years ago. It's a lot of blood, man. And some people, I, the first time I ever remember being brought into a gathering of God's people, I remember the carpet was like neon red. I don't know how you have neon red, but it was. And these people sang nothing but the blood. And I was 10 years old, and I remember sitting there in the pew going, what is going on? Why are they singing about blood? This is weird. Just so happens that's probably my favorite hymn today, because now I understand why they were singing about the blood of Christ. But we need to acknowledge, even as we are going out into this world being missionaries, man, these are foreign ideas to many people. So we have to remember that dots that connect for us don't always connect for everyone else. We need to be patient about that. But we also should make sure we're prepared to understand how these dots connect together. And so why is, why is the wages of sin death? Sin is disobedience to God, and disobedience to God is at its core a decision to go our own way. Remember the garden and our first parents. Think about it. God... God was not coy or unclear about what disobedience to him would bring, was he? He said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. He didn't give him a riddle. It wasn't, it wasn't hard to understand. He said plainly, this is what will go down. But it was a lack of faith and trust in God's goodness and his instruction and a foolish belief that they could be on his level that allowed them to be wooed into eating that fruit. That's what Satan come and did. First, he cast doubt on what God actually said. Did God say that? And then he shot them the temptation of thinking the exact opposite of what God had said could possibly be true. Oh, you will not surely die. You'll be like him, knowing good and evil. There's a sense in the original language that knowing good and evil, there, there's, there's a connotation in that of not just knowing good and evil, but being able to determine it for yourself. They wanted to be like God. That was, sure, the fruit looked good, but there was, I'm sure there was lots of look, good-looking fruit in the garden. I don't think it was just that, man, that fruit just looks so much better than the rest of this fruit. The primary temptation was, you're going to be like God. All sin is really looking at God's offer of only the best things and his offer of eternal life through him and saying, Nah, 
I think I can do better. That's really the root at the heart of sin. And God is the source of eternal life and goodness. Sin is turning our back and running from him like fools. And this is why death is the wages of sin. God is the very source of life. He, it, it is him. And when we turn from him and go our own way, that is, that is why the wages of sin is death. You, you could say sin equals death. It's, it's, it's saying the same thing. And here's, here's we got it. Let's just be honest about this for a second. <clears throat> There's a temptation for people to be mad at God about the simple fact that the wages of sin is death. But being mad at God about this reality, it's like being mad at the sun because you decide to live in the deepest, darkest cave you can find. If the sun could talk, it'd be like, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give you my light for free every day. Come on. And we somehow would be down in our caves, fumbling around, shaking our fists at the sun about how unfair everything is. You guys don't feel like being honest with yourselves this morning or what? That is the reality of the thing. Being upset with God that the wages of sin is death is like being mad at the sun because I decide to find the deepest hole I can and go live in it. Somebody ought to say so. Thank you. That is good. It's definitely better than you're acting like. Thinking about it this way, it makes me so amazed at the patience of God to go into such detail and give us all of the instruction that he has in the scripture. To think about it the way we've just broke it down. To think about the way we've acted and how we've oftentimes, even if only in our hearts, have accused God of, of being unfair. I, honestly, I, I don't think it would have been unfair of God if the entirety of what he gave us if the, if the whole word of God was one simple message, the same message as the hide, the hide your kids, hide your wife person gave to the bad person in the neighborhood, you are really dumb. If that's all this said, God would not have been unfair. Run and tell that. Right? That could have been the whole Bible and God would have been justified. I, I think so. Now, if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, go on YouTube and just type in hide your kids, hide your wife. Because if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's a national treasure you need to be aware of, okay? So just go check it out. All right. But if that's all God told us is you are really dumb, I'd be like, you know, you're, that, you're, you're right. That's fair. Yes, sir. But he didn't. He went into great lengths, okay? 66 books written by 40 authors of the span of 1,500 years, right? All telling one story to lead us gently, woo us into the reality that he is good, he is powerful, he does love us, and he does have a plan. Man, and, and how often do we take even this, the gift of God's word, for granted? Many times. I know I have. The eternal life we were created to live pours forth from the very essence of God himself. Our sin is a rejection of connection to him and the life he provides. Thus, sin equals death. And we've all sinned. 
and fallen short of the glory of God. So we need help. And that is what all the blood is about. Sin equals death. Somebody's going to have to die. Thankfully, Jesus did. Thankfully, God saw fit to allow a sacrifice to step in for us. It's, it's scandalous, really. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't even really compute that God would be that good and that merciful. Total annihilation of us as a species makes way more logical sense than what we get to stand here and celebrate every single week. The grace of God. Verses 23 through 27, we're going to take those together. There's a pivot. Okay, so, so basically, you know, he makes that point, explains all the, what the blood's about, the superiority of Christ over the old covenant system. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. There's this pivot now to a, heaven, a heavenly focus, a future focus. Verse 23 is a kind of a clean demarcation here that is, is really worth exploring, and I'm very thankful that it's here. Uh, particularly, you know, God's, God's very good throughout the scriptures of, of giving us a series of the bad news and then the good news in, in all kinds of different ways through different lenses by different authors, and I'm real thankful for that. But the author here pivots to perhaps the most glorious difference between the old covenant sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ. The old was earthly and temporary. The tabernacle and its furnishings, they were a copy of the heavenly court of God. And this heavenly court is where the perfect and final sacrifice of Christ was presented and why we will never need another. And that simple fact that we will never need another, I know it's lost on you and me. I know you and me have to grasp with our imagination to understand why that matters so much because we did not live for years under the Old Testament sacrificial system. We did not live for years with the fear and uncertainty of knowing our, our foreign army is going to come take our tabernacle, which means we cannot have our sins atoned for. We didn't have to live under the specter of our, our priests going to end up corrupted and then thus my sin will not be able to be atoned for? Or is somebody going to mess something up and thus my sin will not? We've never had to live under that. So I understand it's hard for us to see why it matters so much that Christ took one final perfect sacrifice, presented it in the heavenly court of God, and we will never need another. I know it's hard for us, but I want you to try to reach to understand why that is such a precious truth. Because it, doesn't ha- it didn't have to be as good as it is. It didn't have to, we didn't have, can you conceive of a universe where you don't have a God this perfect, this powerful, this loving, this good that handles it all? It says, here, here's what I need you to do. Just trust me that I've got it. It didn't have to be this way. I mean, what if the Greeks were right? What if the Romans were right? What if there's this pantheon of, of crazy gods that just like to mess with people and we were more like, more like puppets for their entertainment than children that they love? What if that, what if that was the world we lived in? It could have been but it's not. There's one God. He's good. And he's made a final sacrifice on our behalf, one that we can't mess up. The question is just, will I acknowledge that I need it? And will I trust him that what he's done is sufficient? Now, let me deal with the first half of verse 27 real quick, because it 
It's going to take us out of the pocket for just a second. Not totally, but it's a little bit of a side point, all right? Verse 27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, right? So this pivot to kind of the heavenly scene, we're talking now about judgment, we're talking about the court of of God, right? We're talking about the, the, the reality in the heavenlies of which the tabernacle and all the furnishings were just a copy but this, this phrase, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once. This is <clears throat> one reason why. And I want us to make sure we, man, we are, we are haughty sometimes. Because we, we, we can think back to the Israelites making a golden calf and think, oh my gosh, how could you be that stupid? We can think of them worshiping Molech and Baal and having Asherah poles and all this type of stuff and think, man, how could you... How could you eat manna in the wilderness? How could you, I mean, even if it was, it was your grandpa that crossed the Red Sea, you know somebody that saw that. How could you end up mixing all this other stuff in? And yet how many of us have these little mixing ins of other things? Ideas like reincarnation. Ideas like astrology. These are issues. And this verse right here is just one of the reasons why reincarnation is an untenable position for those who believe the God of this Bible is God and that his word is true. Okay? There is, and, and, and it's, you might say, well, I don't, why? Okay? Because really, think about what reincarn, the teaching of reincarnation is. It's really just another form of works-based righteousness, which I will say, on its face, makes way more sense than grace. What? Yeah, doesn't it make more sense to you that if there's, if there's some cosmic force governing the universe, that if, you know, if we, we screw up and do bad on chance one, that we kind of go back in the wheel of time and it comes around and spits us out again, and then you get, you get another shot to try to do it again. Either in that next life you're going to pay some penance for all the bad you did in the last one, or hopefully, you know, enough times around you start to kind of get refined and then there's this end iteration where you reach... The, the final state, and then you get to join, you know, the all source or whatever the heck the thing is. There's different iterations of this. That actually logically makes more sense than, no, you live once, you die once, you're judged, and you're going to be judged based on one thing alone. Have you trusted in Christ's sacrifice and the grace of God? Not on your works, not on your own merits, but on Christ and his merits and whether or not you have trusted in him by faith. Works-based righteousness makes more sense to the carnal mind. Reincarnation makes more sense to the carnal mind than the message of Christ and his gospel and grace offered freely. It really does. So I understand the appeal of that. But there is zero room for it to coexist with a Christian understanding of reality. Okay? So I would just encourage you to be careful even in jest around your kids, talking about past lives and stuff. It's, it's, that can be confusing. And so, so I'm just giving, I'm not going to come out in here and police your language and whatever. You know, that's, that's not the point. I'm just, I'm just offering you something to think about. Because reincarnation is a complete, it flies in the face. It's just yet another iteration of the most heinous sin anyone can commit, which is to stand before a perfect holy God and say, I, I actually deserve to be in your presence. Me, on my own. Go check it, man. Self-righteousness 
is the thing that burns in the nostrils of God the worst? You, well, I don't know. Okay, well, just do a quick survey of how Jesus dealt with people that were guilty of a bunch of external sins that everyone else thought were really nasty and bad. He didn't, he didn't say, oh, it's okay, you can keep doing that. He, he called them to repentance, but he dealt with them gently. But it was when he encountered the ones that thought, oh yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm good with God. Just me, because of what I'm doing. I'm doing a good job. Those are the ones he said, you're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Run and tell that. <laughs> Wish you would. There is no second chance to pay off your sins in a next life and maybe get it right after a few hundred times. That flies in the face of the reality God has given us in his word. Okay? That can't, that can't coexist with a Christian understanding of reality. We die once, Hebrews says, and then comes judgment. And here's how that should go. How many of you like courtroom dramas? Okay, you, you should really like this, okay? Let me paint the scene for you, all right? So God the Father is the judge, okay? That seems pretty clear. Who's the prosecuting attorney? That's right. According to Revelation 12, and also the example we see in the book of Job, Revelation 12 calls Satan what? The accuser of the brethren. And that he's, he's at it all the time, Okay? Now, what should happen is each of us should step up and Satan lays out the case. Every single, every single sin of thought and word and deed that we've ever committed. Not looking forward to that. The standard for a non-guilty verdict is perfection. No sin whatsoever. And so what, what should happen? Well, the evidence would be overwhelming. Every one of us would clearly have earned for ourselves a guilty verdict. We should all then be promptly cast from God's presence and experience eternal death as a result. That is how this trial should go. But wait, there's, there's another person in the courtroom. Our advocate, our defense attorney, Hebrews chapter 8, which we ran a couple weeks ago, already told us he is seated at the right hand of God. He's here for the whole proceeding. And here's, here's the thing. He doesn't have to stand up. He don't have to pace the courtroom coming up with some brilliant or rousing speech to try to defend us. He doesn't have to use some technicality to try to get us off the hook. He doesn't need some Johnny Cochran style, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Because our hands won't be the deciding factor. Without a word, still seated, without even getting up off his throne, our Savior King can just lift his nail-scarred hands for all the room to see, and the accuser has to shut his mouth. Doesn't even have to speak a word. And like the sound of rushing waters comes the sweet sound of the final verdict. This defendant cannot be punished for these crimes because the Lamb of God already was. Come and enter rest. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Thinking about how it should go and then how it will go, that should really inform how much we're looking forward to what verse 28 talks about. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not for judgment, for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who what? Eagerly await him. Verse 28 gloriously points out, some will skip the whole death part because our king will come to claim us. But either way, if our faith and trust are in him, we have no need to fear the day we stand before the great and holy judge. Considering this, friends, I'd like to leave you with this encouragement. I'm just asking us all to examine our hearts to see if a proper yearning resides in our hearts for the day of his coming. Because, let's be honest, fears and distractions, doubts, disordered affections, all of these things, there can be so many things that could keep us from genuinely yearning for Jesus to return. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, it ought to be a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come. He said, instead of being as I fear it is, a kind of foregone conclusion, he will not come just yet. All of this considered, friends, may we not be so enthralled with the trappings of this world that we lack a burning desire for the eternal country that we were made to inhabit. May we make the most of our time here in service to our Savior King, but genuinely look forward with anxious anticipation to the fulfillment of our eternal purpose, which is to live in the unveiled radiance of His glory forever. That's what it's always been about. And God's going to get His will done. And I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of that. Not because I deserve it, because He saw fit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you for Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 is it's deep. Lord, it takes us on a journey. There's a lot there. There's a lot more we could have said about it today, but I thank you for what has been said. Thank you for the things your Holy Spirit has pointed us to. Thank you for the correction that comes in these things. Thank you for the encouragement that comes in these things. Lord, help us. Help those of us that we, we don't, we, we can miss the contrast. We could miss the beauty of the gospel. We could miss the beauty of what is offered in your once for all sacrifice because that's the only sacrifice we've ever really heard about or, or we've ever really understood or experienced, Lord. And, and we are just so prone to take things for granted. So please help us quit doing that. Please help us, Lord. Show us Draw our eyes and our hearts to the, the realities of how incredibly beautiful, how unmatched in glory and, and mercy and radiance is the great message of your gospel, this jewel of our faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that your perfect blood is the once-for-all sacrifice, that there never needs to be another, and that you are now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, your people. Thank you that your nail-scarred hands end the argument every time. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our advocate. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us, Lord. You've been so patient with us. We love you. Please help us live in light of how much you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.